0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Tonight Show. Cybergang hands over a decryption key, but the HSE says there's no cause for celebration just yet. Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King is standing by with the latest. And on our first panel tonight, we're joined in studio by Fianna Foyles, Lisa Chambers and GP Dr Nina Burns. Later in the programme, government under fire in the Doyle as opposition criticises the lack of controls on bulk apartment investment. And our cities in danger of becoming a free-for-all, as people are forced to socialise outside, but we don't have the facilities to allow it. Lord Mayor of Dublin, Hazel Chew, joins us in studio. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Well, we're joined first live from the Department of Health by Zara King. Zara, a decryption key has been shared with the HSE by this cyber gang. What is a decryption key and what is the significance of this?
3: Yes, good evening, Matt. So, a decryption key is a set of code codes or co- it's a code that's shared through the Conti ransomware uh, on the darknet. So, we shared, we believe, earlier today a statement from the government issued this evening, uh, saying a detailed technical process to ensure the integrity of this decryption tool is being carried out by the NCSC, and they say uh, private contractors are also working on this tonight as well. They say it's to ensure that the tool will support the restoration of the system rather than causing further harm. So, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done at this stage, Matt, to establish exactly uh, whether or not this will be successful. Sources telling Virgin Media News uh, that they understand that it is working, but there is a lot of testing that will need to be done. Uh, Now also, uh, sources saying to us this evening, Matt, that obviously these cyber criminals, and money is their central point. So uh, despite the fact that the decryption key has been handed over, it is still believed that this gang will be trying to extract money in some shape or form, uh, particularly when it comes to things like uh, the data. They will be looking for that money uh, to prevent uh, leaking of data. But as we've heard many times from the government and from the HSE they are not prepared to pay a ransom
2: now what's it going to mean though for the restoration of services and what is the HSE saying about the difficulties been experienced particularly in our hospitals at present
3: It's an incredibly difficult situation, Matt, particularly for frontline workers. They've had a really tough year already. But this is something that from the get-go, Paul Reid has said, is going to take uh, weeks rather than days. And even with this decryption code on board, you're still talking about a long period of time. There's an awful lot of work to be done across the HSC network nationwide. And also remember now that we are seven days on without an IT system in many hospitals. Everything is operating with pen and paper. So even the workload in terms of uh, inputting the data that's been uh, generated over the last seven days back into the system, is going to be a mammoth task. It's something that is going to cost millions of euro. It has been a major body blow to the Irish Health Service over the last week.
2: Now, also today, the government went to the High Court and secured what's been described as a super injunction. What's involved in that?
3: Yes, yeah, so the point of this, Matt, was to try and protect people's data, try to deter these criminals from publishing this data online. So uh, the statement tonight from the HSE uh, pointing to that and saying uh, that uh, anyone in possession of our information is to hand it over and to not disclose, trade or deal the information and they say that this order was promptly served on the dark net this evening. Now, uh, the HSE Chief Executive, Paul Rees, did acknowledge that the people you're dealing with uh, may pay no heed to this. He did recognise that. He said, we understand that it may have a limited impact upon those who it is served to these criminals however we take our responsibility to protect our patients and our staff confidentiality very seriously and Paul Reid telling us tonight as well uh, that the judge in the court this evening uh, described this as a heinous and a uh, uh, cowardly crime and it was something that Paul Reid himself echoed strongly.
2: Sarah King, thank you very much for joining us here on The Tonight Show. Well, we're joined here in studio now by Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers and by GP Dr Nina Burns. Lisa, what do you reckon is going on here? Because these criminals are not going to be giving over decryption keys out of the goodness of their hearts. They either have been paid or as part of their strategy to extract further payment. What do you understand is going on?
4: Honestly, I, I don't know the background to getting that key. Whether uh, I, we've, we've heard the line from government and from the HC, no ransom will be paid. So I take it that no payment was handed over for this key. Um, what the criminal's intentions are, we don't know. We're not dealing with decent people. We're not dealing with reasonable people. Their sole game is just to, 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 to get money, to, to service themselves uh, and to serve their own interest. And I think that's at the heart of this. So I, I don't believe we should pay anything. I don't think we can pay anything. Um, we can't even, be sure. if it,
2: even though we're in a situation whereby there are many, many people who are suffering the consequences of this, do we not need to be pragmatic and say pay the money, get the systems running again so that we can actually look after the patients in our hospitals and invest to ensure that this can't happen again?
4: Well first priority is to look after patients and, and patient welfare but we have no guarantee that we hand over money and the systems come back up and running and does anybody for a second think that if they have data that's valuable that if they get paid from the state for it, that they'll somehow dispose of it and not not pass it on. I don't believe that to be the case. So I don't think handing over any amount of money is going to solve this issue for us. I think we have to rebuild our systems, focus our energies and our resources on rebuilding our own systems. But how
2: long is that going to take?
4: I don't know. We've been told weeks. This isn't a small issue. This is huge. This is the biggest attack that the HC has ever faced. Um, The systems have effectively crumbled under this attack. Um, you know the frontline staff are under significant pressure resorting to having to carry bits of paper to deliver test results so it is I mean we're not underestimating the challenge of this but I think our energy our resources our focus is not to service the interest of the criminals but to service our health care our, our patients and get our own systems back up and running I really think we have no other option.
2: Dr Nina Burns can we afford to take the high moral ground in relation to dealing with criminals?
0: I'm going to say might not be popular, but I don't know that we can. And and interestingly, I think Stephen Donnelly's statement said no ransom was paid by the Irish state. He didn't say no ransom was paid, and I thought that was interesting that he didn't just say no ransom was paid. I haven't read any statement since. Maybe they clarified that after. Um, So you know, our health system has fallen apart in the last week, and um, we need to get our systems back up and running. We're dealing with criminals no matter what way we look at it. If we don't pay them, they'll sell the data. If we do pay them, they'll probably sell the data. Um, But they've given us this key, a disencryption key. So, you know, how we got it, I suppose, isn't important, really. We've got it, and I hope it works, and I hope that we managed to get some systems back up and running and I hope that we can get our health service back. And then what I really hope we do is realise how vulnerable we were and make sure nothing like this ever happens again.
2: What particular things were you the most? I mean, there's a number of aspects to this, as treatment in our hospitals, it's about getting uh, people in at the right times, but also the issue, which maybe you're hearing about from some of your patients, confidentiality of records. How important is that to people?
0: It's hugely important. I mean, you know, as a GP, and I'm going to sort of give a call out to GPs here because GPs have led the way um, with digital health in this country in many ways. We were using computer systems for records long before any part of our health service. And GPs in the last number of years have largely... Um, updated their security. We all knew Windows 7 was no longer going to be supported. GPs of their own money, have many have spent tens of thousands upgrading their hardware to make sure that we had up-to-date systems because we knew how vulnerable that data would be and how important that data is. So I think it's really, really important that we recognize now that we have very, very serious data on patients. That data is king in the world today and we have to invest Everything we can, resources, money, whatever it takes to make sure that patient data is protected forevermore in this state.
2: What about the underfunding? I know the HSE has been spending something like 200 million a year on IT, but yet it doesn't seem to have spent the money to update the systems to protect itself against this in a way that no other major health system that we know of around the world has been targeted.
4: Well, well we know that New Zealand has been targeted, um, maybe not to the same extent, but there's no point in, I don't think anybody could suggest that our systems were up to scratch. Clearly they weren't. Um, Clearly we didn't have the protections in place to stop an attack of this nature. I'm not sure that you can ever have a system 100% robust to prevent against all attacks. We are dealing with highly sophisticated criminals that are very clever and, and very good at what they do so
2: hold on uh, this is like behaving like this is unexpected we just heard from Nina that the GPS were aware of the potential damage years ago and addressed it
4: yeah I mean cr- credit to GPS I know my own local GP um, has spent considerable uh, invested a lot in his own practice so why did
2: and why didn't the government instruct her to do so
4: yeah I mean I, 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 I can only assume that monies were directed elsewhere in terms of patient care and that the IT system was long-fingered, to to put it that way, and I think we're paying the price for it now. Um, But nobody can defend and say that our systems were up to scratch. Clearly, they were not. Um, But now we have to rebuild that system and hopefully um, have a more robust system.
2: Well, the impact of the cyber attack on cancer patients has been particularly severe when it comes to delayed treatment and cancellations. We're joined now by Pa Heenan. Pa, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Can you tell us, please, your own particular story, how you're fixed at present in your own fight against cancer?
5: So I've just come to the end of my chemotherapy treatment and um, I just finished my four, fourth cycle two weeks ago and now I'm waiting for my, you know, very important CT scan because, you know, at the m- moment I don't know, you know, has my cancer treatment been effective? Do I require further treatment? You know, when exactly can I get my life back? And, you know, that's mentally draining thinking about that. This should be a time for me to heal, to relax, you know, and just wait patiently for this CT scan, but I'm really in the dark since, since this happened and it's really, really difficult.
2: Had you had a date for when you were due to have it? I had an
5: initial date, but it has been cancelled and I've been given an insight now, but an insight really isn't good enough for someone like me who is, you know, trying to stay calm and stay relaxed. And at the minute, it's just so up in the air. And you know throughout my treatment i've tried to show resilience and be really positive and i think this could be the stage now where you know i crack a little bit because you know there's only so much waiting around you can do and this ct scan is so important
2: you're a young man to have cancer as well how long have you had it so
5: i was diagnosed in december and yeah it's nearly six months now and you know, this is a time where I should be experiencing relief after going through the mill, really, for the last six months. And I just, I'm in complete shock. And, you know, having this CT scan date, the initial one, was my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. And now I'm just completely just left blindsided, really.
2: But would you want the department, the HSC and the government to actually pay the ransom, if need be, to get health services restored so that you and all the other people who are fighting illness at present get a better chance?
5: Look to be honest I'm no politician and I'm not an expert in IT but all I can say is that this is a really really difficult time and you know I'm representative of one cohort of people and there's a thing called Scanziety and the Irish Cancer Society refer to that on their social media, and it's actually crippling. And all I can say is, regardless of how this is rectified, it really needs to be done as soon as possible.
2: And the people that you're dealing with in the health service, I mean, are you having to phone in now and try and find records and stuff, given that they might have a difficulty with accessing things with the computer's been done?
5: Well, I actually phoned um, clerical staff in the hospital. Um, I just was kind of tired of waiting around and I can't put the blame on them. They're doing their best. But I actually phoned and they didn't have a contact number for me. So that leaves me thinking, how am I going to get an appointment for my CT scan now? I presume the hospital don't have my address on file, you know, a hard copy of it. So I really don't know where this is going and when this, you know, I suppose... It's torture in a way, like, and I just don't know when it's going to end.
2: Hopefully very soon. Pat. listen, thank you very much for taking the time to joining us on The Tonight Show. And hopefully you'll get your scan quickly and the treatment is working and you'll be well again soon.
5: Thanks a million. Fingers crossed.
2: Fingers crossed indeed, Nina, but there must be countless people around the country who are in a similar situation.
0: Yeah, my heart just bleeds for patients, you know, and I, I know I am only seeing this as a healthcare worker. I don't want to in any way knock the people who are working really hard at higher levels in IT to sort this. I, I can only imagine how difficult the last week has been for them. But patients and healthcare workers have suffered enough in this country for the last year. I mean... To be hit like this, obviously the people who did it are ultimately responsible, but it is the average person on the street who's suffering. Cancer patients, patients who've been waiting months, if not years, for outpatient appointments that have been cancelled. They don't deserve to suffer anymore and we need to sort this and whatever it takes, it needs to be done.
2: Would this change your mind, Lisa, on this idea of hanging tough, not dealing with criminals?
4: It's not about hanging tough or not dealing with them, but... You, just, you don't know what the outcome will be. You could hand over money and, and have no results. And I think if we were the, to set the that... The experts
2: in this say that these guys, these organisations trade on the basis of they need to hand back the material so that the next scam with somebody else will work, that they have a reputation for handing back the goods after they've been paid their money
4: that I'm not convinced of and um, you can you can hand back one copy and maybe keep a copy I, I'm not convinced that if you have valuable data that you'll simply discard it or just hand it back
2: but isn't it more than just the sort of the data on people saying it's actually to allow the systems to actually function it seems that an awful lot of our machinery inside in the hospitals and the operations and the radiation that we do is now connected to the internet and that's the key figure thing
4: yeah I mean that that is that is top priority for the HSE. that the scans the the MRI x-rays that the diagnostic tests, they are they are top priority. I think they will be back online sooner than the rest of the system because they're prioritising that. My heart goes out to pass. I, I have no answer for what that man's been through. I can't even imagine what the last six months have been like. But I I believe that the HSE are taking the right approach, that the government are taking the right approach to focus our energy and our resources on rebuilding our systems with the technical experts that we have. I I just don't think it's an option to simply pay these guys off and and hope for the best. You've explained to
2: us, Nina, about how GPs had invested in getting your own systems protected, but you're still caught up in this, aren't you? Because a lot of the work that you would do in conjunction with the hospitals has been affected. In what way?
0: Yeah, look, we're we're not nearly badly as hit as our poor colleagues in the hospitals. And, and, you know, my heart bleeds for what their days have been like in the last week. Um, But yes, we are impacted. You know, we're sort of practicing with our hands tied behind our back. Um, We can't order bloods. Um, The hospitals have asked us not to order anything but the most urgent of bloods. And thankfully in GP, you know, most of the work we do, it doesn't have to be done today. It's a matter of doing bloods to progress a diagnosis. But we've had to delay them. We can't do smears. Um, we can't send for public radiology for the most part, unless we defer out to a private clinic, which we've limited access to for public patients. So it's, you know, I had to say to so many patients yesterday I want to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to figure this out. But I need you to ring me back in a week or two and I'll let you know when we can do those tests. And, you know, if that goes on much longer, you know, if we can't do referrals, if we can't do anything, how many diagnoses are going to be delayed?
2: Some of the people we also know who've been guests on this programme in the emergency departments have said this has been worse than anything that they had to experience with COVID, the workloads. But what do you make of, you now? it's been said, that people have been turned away from emergency departments?
0: Well, I would like to think that that's not true. I'd like to think that people who go to emergency departments need to be seen, but we do know every day there are people who attend emergency departments who could be looked after in the community, and you know I want to make it clear to people: GPs are open, and you don't need to go to an emergency department. You can ring your GP. We'll, we will, of course, see you, and if something is urgent, we will sort it on the day.
2: But, but certain th- things you can't do. You have to go to no, an and if you need to go to and an it's an the only way to get into yeah. hospital, isn't it, via the emergency? And look, department? you
0: know what? One thing I'm going to say is: thankfully, Irish frontline healthcare workers—I've said it again many times, and I'll say it again—were some of the best trained in the world, in my experience. I've worked on three continents. We're really good at working with our gut. We're really good at examining and diagnosing. And I think that stands to us in this, because when you don't have all that access to immediate radiology, immediate bloods, you have to go with your gut a lot. But I think, you know, a lot of the time, we're pretty good at diagnosing in Ireland. So I think Irish patients can be reassured. They're being looked after by some of the best healthcare workers in the world, and I don't say that lightly.
2: Are you happy with the government's response to all of this, Lisa? Because it's been pointed out today that our Acting Minister for Justice, while Helen McIntyre is away Heather Humphreys, hasn't given even a press conference in relation to what is perhaps the biggest crime that has been committed against the state in its history.
4: Yeah, I suppose in in fairness to to Minister Humphreys, I assume she's taking a briefing on it. and that, that the priority of the government has been the focus on the health department because that's where patients are being impacted. And I think we can deal with the criminal aspect in time. But no, I, I do. Well,
2: surely the criminal aspect has to be dealt with immediately because the crime is still in progress. Well, the
4: crime is in progress, but we don't know who the criminals are. We can't identify them. They're not in the state, we have to assume. Um, and I do believe that the focus has to be of the entirety of government. On getting the health system back up and running that is the top priority so i've no doubt that minister Humphreys will deal with this um, and she will have the support of the government to do that but absolutely for, for the, the the utmost focus has to be the health she's service.
2: she's giving a press conference tomorrow in relation to tidy towns, and she hasn't actually taken questions from the media as to how the department of justice is dealing with this crisis
4: i really can't answer to that only that i'm assured that the government is working on this around the clock all all members of government and the focus is has been on the health system and i, I do believe that's the right focus for now the patients have to come first get the hospitals back up and running get the diagnostic systems back up and running um, we will have time to assess the full damage in the fullness of time
2: nina as a practitioner are you happy with the way the government is dealing with this
0: i'm sure they're doing their best i'm not, I'm not saying they're not but they're working against you know, tech geniuses, let's not be under any doubt. These criminal gangs are tech geniuses. They're going to be a step ahead of us all the way. And if a billion dollar gas company in America were brought to their knees, and they probably had the resources of some of the best cybercrime people in the world helping them, and they gave in and they paid them. I just, I have to be honest, I don't know that we stand a chance against them. These people are smart, and I don't think we can underestimate what they can do. And I, unfortunately, I think, we're going to have to maybe just see how differently we can deal with them. Ultimately, you know, when you look into this and when you look into other crimes similar, ultimately, as you said, these people are business people of sorts. And um, you know, if we don't pay them, they're going to get their money somehow. They will definitely sell the data if they don't get the money somewhere else, because it's the only way to make money.
2: We'll leave it there for now. Our thanks to Nina Burns for joining us. Lisa Chambers will be staying with us. And after the break, the government is facing a further backlash over the stamp duty hikes it has announced for for investment sales as the opposition brands Dublin City, a free-for-all for the vulture clubs. Welcome back, Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers is still with us and we're joined now by Social Democrats' TD Keanu O'Callaghan and via Skype by architect Roisin Murphy and Roisin I'm going to start with you because of the things that have been decided in the Dáil in the last couple of days or voted on after government. It seems that we are drawing a distinction as it between apartments and houses. That apartments are something that is fine for institutions to own because they're things we rent whereas houses are things we buy. Is that the right approach? (laughs)
6: It's certainly not the right approach, but it's uh, a very Father Ted thing, isn't it? We're going to be absolutely no stamp duty for first time buyers, but only for houses, which it's, you know, and yet we're trying to get everybody to live in apartments. So it is that complete uh, double bind. I, I have to say it was a bit surprising,
2: bit surprising do irish people do you think still regard apartments as something that if they move to cities that they live in for a while while they're saving money to buy what they really want which is a house
6: (laughs) um i think perhaps when houses uh i you know what irish people have changed i think that there is we we are a much broader population more diverse and a lot of people Irish people actually want apartments and um, people who are downsizing young couples who don't necessarily want to live in a house. They don't want guards. They don't want to have barbecues. They're not at that stage of life. There's lo- and lots of families who want love to live in a, an open plan, looking out over the city um, and the standards um, need to rise in terms of balconies and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think. In some ways, maybe old school, we regard very cynically apartments, but we're a bit cynical again now because the idea of apartment ownership is sort of not coming into the concept of any of this apartment living. So there is a huge... If, yeah. we ha-
2: if we have a situation, though, that we're b- building yeah. better standard apartments with balconies, dual aspect windows, yes. much better than the ones yeah. that might have been built in the 80s and 90s, yes. aren't they going to be way more expensive? And aren't they going to be beyond the reach of first-time buyers because of the construction costs, which means, then again, you need these investment funds to buy them on a long-term basis and rent so them oh, out? I
6: know. I'm okay. I'm really cynical about this because I think that this is this, this thing we hear all the time, oh my God, it's so difficult to build apartments. God, we'll have to get all the lads in with the 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 these portfolio guys to build these apartments. We built them before. We built Ballymoon then we knocked them down. Apartments aren't that complex to build. Uh, the regulations as well. The improvement is also there's a there's a contradiction here there in terms of fire. But that's a whole other argument where they're trying to downsize distances in fire. But uh, I think the rental um what they aren't doing, they really are a commodity at the moment. Apartments have become something that you invest in as an investor for pension funds. The funding of how we are building apartments is not future proofed for the Irish state like there's n- nobody's interested in building in Ireland because we're so there because they're like philanthropic they're building here apartments because they're a really good investment they are yielding extremely well so what we have um to be careful about and which we're not being careful about and, and they're being careful all over the rest of Europe they're trying to ban in Germany some of these this model modeling of building is that we don't just become somebody else's uh, rental income on a a sheet in some other
2: place. (laughs) And uh, and the stamp duty has to do that. Kian, there was an argument made strongly in recent years that we needed, instead of having all investors, higgledy-piggledy, maybe owning a house here, an apartment there, deciding that they wanted to evict their tenants because they wanted to give it to a child or sell-on, that we needed these institutions, because that's the way it's done all around continental Europe, long-term leases at fair rents where people had security.
7: Yeah, I think if you want to get good conditions for renters and for renting, and that's what we do need, the way to do that is actually through regulation.
5: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
7: regardless of whether it's a pension fund or an investment fund or an individual uh, landlord. So we've got some of the weakest protections for renters in Europe Uh, Effectively you can be evicted out of your home if you're renting here on a huge number of grounds whereas most other European countries, you know, if you don't pay your rent, you're engaged in antisocial behaviour yeah, you could be evicted, but not for any reason under the sun. So that's actually the issue that needs to be uh, fixed there to make renting a more secure, long-term, viable option for people. I think a lot of people actually do want to, in terms of apartments, do want to have the option to own them. I've certainly been contacted by a lot of people. Uh, you know really really kind of angry at, the, the, at what's now you know effectively government policy that all apartments uh, should be sold onto investment funds and we, and we didn't know that up until recently but the government have specifically decided not to take any action in terms of investment funds and apartments. And we know that, you know, last year it looks like about pretty much 100%, nearly every new build apartment was sold onto investment funds.
2: Isn't this pretty explicit confirmation, the distinction drawn, particularly by Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue and the government, between apartments and houses, that the government has decided, yeah, they want people to have the chance to buy houses, but apartments, they're for rent.
4: Well, well, first of all, the financial measures that were brought through the all this week relating to stamp duty increased stamp duty from 1% to 10% on, on, on the purchase of more than 10 properties in any development, which is a significant increase in the stamp duty on those developments. And that will deter these investment funds from but buying up... But really,
2: given the amount of money that they have at their disposal, cheaper source of funds than banks, and given that they're taking a long-term view of 25 to 30 years, do you really think that a stamp duty increase is going to deter them? I
4: do, I do. I think when you go from 1% to 10% um, on the purchase of more than 10 homes, I think it will deter them. And that's, on a 25 that's, to 30 that, year investment? That is, that's the information that we have. We do think it's going to be effective and it's in direct response to, we would have seen the situation in Kildare where you know 135 odd houses out of 170 were snapped up that were just about to be completed or were completed and they were snapped up under the nose of first-time buyers. So that's what that was trying to address. But I think we have to be honest. So, but
2: this doesn't address it because well, anything it, that has planning permission at present is just going to go continue anything the work is underway so these moves and not the stamp you to be the things are going to take years before they have any benefit? Well,
4: the stamp duty will take three months to bed in. There is a lead-in time on that, and that's the advice from the Attorney-General. You can't bring it in overnight. And yes, existing planning permissions will be honoured. But I do think it will have a dramatic impact. And I think you know the issue that Keane is referring to in terms of apartments in city centres, You know, we, we have to be honest. The state is not going to be able to do everything on its own. We do still need some investment and targeted investment where it's needed. And we have information to government that if we were to increase the cost of providing apartments density in city centres it would actually reduce supply so when we're at a point where we have a housing crisis and limited you. supply we Is can't Is there not an supply? argument
2: that by some of the measures that have been suggested we would end up having the worst of all worlds and that we would reduce supply and still not have a, a greater availability to people to buy?
7: Well actually if we look at where some of the state funds have gone in terms of these investment funds we've actually spent in the last few years as a state with state funds hundreds of millions that have gone into either building homes that have been sold onto investment funds are actually into directly financing investment funds to buy up homes. That's been done through the Irish uh, Strategic Investment Fund. It's been done through Home Building Finance Ireland that was set up to support small uh, builders. And instead, we we learned that a lot of those funds have actually gone to large developers who really have no issue at all in terms of raising finance themselves. But just on the the stamp duty point, it's worth saying a lot of these investment funds already pay commercial stamp duty in terms of investment in hotels, offices of 7.5%. That has had no dampening effect Whatsoever on those commercial investments, I, you know, can't see how a 10% stamp duty would. And if you look at, you know, if you take the example of Minute, some of these investment funds were outbidding uh, housing associations by 80,000 euro on homes that would be about 400,000 euro. So a 10% stamp duty wouldn't even that w- wouldn't even bridge half. You know, would bridge about half of that only. So it won't be a disincentive. They look at their returns over 40, 50 years. They get some of the highest yields on rent. Uh, in Europe, in Ireland now. Uh, they're getting much higher yields and you know, returns on rent than they would be investing in other areas. So if we don't tackle the rent levels and actually try and regulate rent levels for new bills, we're, we're going to continue to have this problem.
4: But you still, you still haven't addressed the issue around supply. There's evidence to government that if you are to increase the cost of providing apartments density now in city centres, that you'll impact on supply directly. And that's something that we can't afford to do at this point in time. What you're not focusing on is the affordable housing bill, directly build units by the local authorities. That's a good thing. You've called for that. That's being delivered. A cost rental scheme, that's being delivered. These will provide apartments as well as homes, and social and affordable. Well, let me bring so Roche you're focusing in back on, in. on one element that you're not happy with, but not acknowledging the amazing work that has been done in the last number well, of uh, months. You, Two landmark pieces of legislation. If I,
7: if I can briefly answer that we were promised by the Minister for housing in the last election 10,000 direct build affordable homes each year instead this year we're getting 50 so if instead of putting hundreds of millions into these investment funds and into building homes that have been sold off to them I, we're much no better put that we're into can i put that into because she's into been waiting very housing.
2: patiently what's your reaction to <laughs> what you've been hearing here in studio
6: well, first of all, I, you know, I have to say I do the fact that we're debating it and we're getting to a point where people are arguing facts and figures about stamp duty and trying to disincentivise the, the bulk buying of the of the units, whether they're houses or apartments. I mean, we've been banging on the door talking about trying to dis- disincentivise these investment that block buyers. But I, I'm i sorry, I have to say, I don't think it's enough. And I think the argument, the argument that we need these foreign investors to fund our housing isn't stacking up, and it doesn't inter- in, uh, stack up internationally. They have uh, they have these far more complex uh, housing associations and building agencies, and who are providing land at a much cheaper cost. They're doing community building, where they're allowing, their, you know, they're letting land to uh, people to build their own housing on. We really need a broader sense of what is social housing and um, what is affordable rent. In Austria, you can see you can rent an apartment for 600 euros a month. Like, it's, it's I think we're starting, but I think we have a lot further to go before we start saying that we're doing great work. We're not doing good enough work and we're not doing fa- it fast enough. It, I don't think the stamp duty is a, is a fast or thorough enough measure. Roisin, to stop. there's meat. another
2: measure I want to ask you about, yeah. which we did hear a little bit about on the programme last night. And that's a vacant yes. house tax because the numbers are oh, extraordinary. Yes. Something like 200,000 units in the country yeah. that if they were being occupied, would go a long way to solving our issues uh, with a lack of
1: supply. Yeah.
6: Yes. And one of the things what, and I suppose I I, I, I work in conservation and a bit of an activist in conservation, and you will see an awful lot of vacant, particularly in in lucrative city centre locations, you'll see all these wonderful um, streets with vacant over the shop things. And then they say they've run into dereliction. And next thing they're they're turned into kind of very lucrative uh, co-housing, which is now banned but this stuff that's in planning is still coming through. So I think that we need to incentivize and make it easier for people to convert those units as well. I do know in the last government they were trying to do that uh, and we were hoping even that, oddly enough, that Covid would promote people back into kind of vacant housing but the Airbnb, the whole lot, it's a very complex mix and we need a far more aggressive, okay, cohesive approach. Well, let me put
2: that government. to Cian because, you know, there was talk before about using land, use it or lose it and having taxes. But what about vacant houses, derelict houses, uh, ones that have been used, or perhaps people are in nursing homes and aren't allowed to rent out because of the fair deal scheme?
7: Yeah, and the, the fair deal scheme is actually a, a particular blocker for, you know, empty homes that could be rented out and people are very heavily penalised if they, if they do that. So that should be addressed. The government have been saying that they will. I, I really hope they do because that would create thousands of, of homes that could be then, you know, rented out and and provide decent housing. And yet the wider issues around vacancy have to be tackled. We know, for example, some of these investment funds, not all of them, but some of them uh, deliberately leave a lot of their apartments empty so that they don't have to drop rents. uh, And that's a part of their model, and that should be heavily taxed so they can't do that. I mean, scandalous that we have hundreds of new build apartments lying empty because the investment funds don't want to rent them out, shouldn't be tolerated.
2: One thing I want to ask Lisa before we finish which is un- entirely unrelated but we're hearing tonight from the European Union the European Commission on the digital green start coming in in June. How quickly will Ireland sign up to that, allow people to travel in and out of the country of aviation given particularly the crisis the aviation industry is facing at present?
4: Yeah I, I expect it to take us six weeks, that's what we've been given to implement it. I would like to see it happen sooner. I think our aviation sector is, is it, not, I don't I know it's on its knees and that needs to be addressed and just before, in case I don't get a chance to, to address a previous comment around the number of units delivered, um, it would be reasonable to acknowledge that during a pandemic where construction hadn't been closed, that it did impact on, on construction of homes. I think I why well, wasn't that
2: allowed to continue given that the construction of major infrastructural projects for American multinational companies continued?
4: Because it would have meant thousands of sites open around the country, even though even though there were smaller sites and putting people's lives at risk, and that wasn't a risk we were willing to take.
7: But to be fair, we were promised 10,000 affordable homes for the minister during the election. We're getting 50 direct build affordable well, homes. Well, can, can I make the now, point? And that's not all can down, make down make to it, COVID. Can, can
4: we be reasonable? The minister that's now in charge. Did not make that. Did no, he did. He so should, the minister is currently on, in charge. On, came on in, Twitter.
7: On Twitter, he did. The minister is cur- the the minister
4: that's currently in charge. Came in last July. He has given significant commitments. Brought in significant. And he made that
7: promise. Construction has been closed,
4: and and I've read your housing policy, all three pages of it, by the way, and no detail as to how you would deliver homes to the Social Democrats. Lots of bluster, lots of bluff, but no that's, no solutions. That's not true. Three pages.
2: Right. We have to leave it there. Our Well, joining us here in studio is the Lord Mayor of Dublin and Green Party Chair, Hazel Chew. And by Skype, the co-host of the United Ireland podcast, Andrea Horan. Andrea, if I could start with you, we keep hearing about that this is going to be the summer for outdoor activity. But, you know, for the people who don't have a back garden to go to or a balcony to hang out on, particularly younger people, do our cities, and Dublin in particular, have the facilities and amenities available to allow people to hang out?
8: Um, I think if anything we've learned from the pandemic is that we don't have the facilities or amenities in our city. The minute that uh, shops and bars and restaurants were closed down, all our toilets went, we would nowhere to sit. If you walk through town at the moment, there's like people sitting on the ground everywhere and people are afraid of the fact that people are socialising a city should be alive a city should be full of people a city should be being utilized we should but it doesn't it shouldn't be at the cost that you have to be spending to do it but without the facilities um that are providing the amenities we don't have anything so uh yeah we're we're definitely not in a position to have an outdoor summer
2: Hazel you your lord mayor of dublin the the book falls with the councils, doesn't it? To provide things like the benches to sit on, the toilets to use, the bins to put rubbish in. And yet the reaction seems to be that when people do congregate, and there's a lack of facilities, will then shut down the space to them, like we're seeing in Portobello in uh, Dublin at present.
1: Yeah, and uh, to be quite honest with you, Matt, you're, you're absolutely right, the book does fall with the council. And we had that meeting about Portobello this morning. We had a second meeting where myself and uh, a handful, a small handful of other councillors disagree with it being shut down because we don't think public spaces should be shut down. We do, however, completely sympathise with the residents and we want to make sure that they have a home they can live in and and they can have a restful night sleeping, but at the same time we don't want the public space shut down. So our proposal, my proposal to the Council was very simple, have better Uh, public order policing, have better enforcement in place, but also have facilities, because we need the uh, facilities that Andrea talked about in relation to toilets, in relation to better bins. We need more public space, and we need the council to do more in it. And I know plenty of people have said, well, you're the Lord Mayor, you should be uh, saying it and doing it. I have, and I will continue to push the council that we need to do more.
2: Andrea, Portobello is just one example because I think there are plenty of parks and canal banks and riverbanks all over the country where similar things are happening in relation uh, to drinking, not having place for rubbish to be disposed of, not having uh, toilet facilities available. But the Portobello example, what do you think it says about the attitudes?
8: Um, I think it's been evident for a long time that we don't uh, value the culture of socialisation in Dublin that we try and uh, empty the city out because it's easier to run a city when there's not people being inconvenient um, and a nuisance and we need to get to a point where we see that groups of people together is not you see see it so often it's like oh there was a rave it's actually just a group of people having a drink or a chat or whatever of course there is uh, anti-social behavior and we have to work at nipping that in the bud and not then how, how everyone How though? Because else.
2: in fairness, Andrea, a lot of the residents in that area and in other areas complain about things that when people are drinking and they're on toilet facilities, there's urination taking place, there's even defecation taking place in people's doorsteps. So if that is happening, aren't the residents entirely uh, in right to complain about that and about the noise that keeps them from sleeping?
8: but at the same time, what's the problem? The problem is there's no toilets. The problem is there's nowhere to sit and the problem is there's nowhere to go. Our parks are closed early. Um, when the parks close, everyone goes to the canal when, and we're talking about, we're going to have an outside summer, but we don't have anywhere that has outdoor, outdoor theater. We don't have anywhere that has seating. Imagine uh, a plaza that had seats and that was a little bit controlled and that people could enjoy these amenities, but we have not a hint of an amenity uh, that is uh, outside. We, it's literally like there's a clearance of the city to get everyone out because it's much easier to, um, th- to manage. And then... It's really at nighttime that the problem is. And we have a problem with seeing socialization at nighttime as a nuisance um, all the time. And if we don't put in, we need a 24 hour city for starters. And when we start to grow up about people actually maybe hanging out together, socializing together, and enjoying themselves, and that's not actually a bad thing, we'll be able to put in the facilities that will be able to uh, treat people like adults. And when people are treated like adults, they respond like adults. And when they have toilets to go in, they go in toilets.
2: Hazel Chew, the, your party today was speaking about something called night marshals. Yeah. What would they be and who would they be?
1: So I think myself and Andrea, well, myself and Andrea agree on a lot of things, uh, but one of the things coming from my offence background we have a lot of people w- within the events industry that's out of business at the moment. So our proposal, the Greens proposal, was very simple. Uh, have night marshals, have it as event control, have areas that are public spaces that would have people hanging out in, have people socialising in, that you have in ma- event management plans behind so it.
2: effectively the bouncers that you would well, have no, at nightclubs are the security that you would it, have it's not at that. concerts. So it, those are the type of people that you think sec- should be hired to do the job that many people say would be it, for the carnival. It's,
1: it's not just security. If you ever have, have you ever been to a festival? No, so those okay so when you go to a festival you're having a good time every so often someone will come over to you and say either pick up your rubbish or listen you're going too close there so people who are not there for enforcement but more to manage the situation and that's what we we as a city need if we're ha- going to have evening you events you see
2: at events like that though those people often have the power to evict if people are misbehaving you can't start if you're not a guard evicting people from a public place can you but
1: i don't think you need to evict people you need to as as um, andrea was saying there about antisocial behaviour, we need to instill pro-social behaviour, we need to tell people, listen, this is public realm space, it's there for you to enjoy, but it's also for there, for there for you to take care of as well, because it belongs to you as well as everyone else.
2: Andrea, what do you make of the idea of night marshals, a sort of a quasi-police force, or at least a security <laughs> encouragement?
8: I, think, uh, I don't think it's going to be a quasi police force at all. I think it's just an encouragement. Um, I, I completely agree. If you have people who are uh, telling people when the bins are full, uh, like directing people to maybe quiet and down, and just reminding people, because when you have a drink, you do forget about other people and being considerate. Um, and at the end of the day, you, no one can change your life except for you in terms of when people are telling you what to do. So if you take it on board yourself to do it, and then have people encouraging you to do it rather than giving out to you. And I think what Hazel's talking about is very, the pro-social behaviour thing is very astute. And I think with those marshals, I think we could achieve that if we had then the facilities to back that up as well.
2: Is there a danger that perhaps some of the official thinking in relation to the outdoor summer is on the basis of people's outdoor dining in organised situations like pubs and restaurants, But that's not for everybody because they simply can't afford that or they may not be the capacity. That younger people in particular might quite enjoy the idea of sitting out by the canal or the riverbank or in a park having a few cans.
8: I think we have to look at our city as not being just a place where you spend money. And the sooner we get away from just being shops, and services and look towards having a city that's alive, that can be lived in, that people can congregate and meet and um, without having to spend money. But having the amenities and services to do that and to have a, a widespread cultural offering, like we, it would be amazing to see the city come alive um, w- with late mu- museums open at late night time, And so that we didn't have to rely on sitting on the side of a canal. As much as fun as sitting on the canal is, it's stunning when it's sunny and uh, I think we can all agree. But if we have other things, things to do that we're not we're actually just feels like we're not looking at other options it's like we're just shutting everything down until the private market comes back to deal with everything and that is not fair for the residents of a city to have to rely on businesses to carry all the slack
2: and indeed on the weather like we're having today you wouldn't want to be sitting out in a park or the canal so what is the city council and the state going to do to offer more things for people during the summer, safely social distancing and out in the open air?
1: So from the state's perspective, uh, Minister Catherine Martin had um, instituted a nighttime economy task force. So a range of people sit on that task force, including myself, uh, Sunil Sharp from uh, Give Us the Night, Robbie Kidd, the Justice Department to look at licensing law, a variety of people. And what we hope in the coming report of this nighttime economy task force is that there will be pilot programs for a city and also for rural areas on what this nighttime economy should look like. How to Andreas no, co-
2: but this but is an urgent issue. I think isn't it, it, and, and
1: this is why we're looking at it now because we don't want the evening to just be eight to ten. We want it to be six to six in the morning. But we don't want it to just be drinking. We want it to be, as, uh, as Andrea says, theatre, a culture, everything. Like w- if you live in New York, you will have galleries open at three in the morning. Why not? We uh, can, why can't we have that in the city? And that's what we want to bring to the very city. Very
2: briefly, have you managed to secure a nod from the Green Party yet for the by-election? And, and Dublin's South the South. nomination South. South. the
1: nomination process will close tomorrow and the uh, final ca- the candidate selected will be announced probably first week of June fourth or fifth the closing of ballots is the fourth do
2: you expect to be the only person seeking the candidacy uh,
1: no, absolutely not I think there has been others who have said they will be going forward we'll see after tomorrow who who those people will be
2: okay thank you very much for being with us here on the tonight show that is all the time that we have tonight our thanks to hazel and Andrea and indeed all one of our guests throughout the programme. I will be back on the radio on Today FM tomorrow afternoon at half past four and then Claire will be back here on Monday evening at 10 o'clock. So we'll have lots to talk about every night next week. A very good night to you and enjoy your outdoor weekend and hopefully it doesn't rain too much.
1: a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
2: Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.